Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. So the need for deficit spending is in the air. A few days ago, The Atlantic's Derek Thompson was on the show arguing that we need to spend $10 trillion to uh, address the pandemic. Next month, uh, Joe Biden's major economic advisor, Stephanie Calton, is coming out with an important new book called The Deficit Myth. Uh, Stephanie's already agreed to be on the show. Everyone's talking about spending our way out of the crisis. And of course, this raises the ghost, at least, of the great uh, British early 20th century economist and, and political thinker, John Maynard Keynes. Well, as it happens, uh, we have a new book out about Keynes, coincidentally. Uh, the Price of Peace, Money, Democracy, and the Life of John Maynard Keynes by Zachary D. Carter, who also writes for the Huffington Post. Uh, Zach, I know you'd had all this arranged, right? You spent four or five years researching and writing this book, but you knew there was going to be a coronavirus crisis. You knew that you were going to be on this show talking about the need for deficit spending, right? Had it all planned out. I've been uh, been been working according to a very exact schedule for the last decade, and and it's all gone according to plan. In all seriousness, though, what why uh, why Keynes? You, you've invested. This is your first book, but you've spent several years on it. It's it's a, it's a big book, six hundred pages. It's had an enormous amount of positive uh, reviews. Uh, uh, the New York Times was gushing over it. Amazon best history book of the month. Starred reviews on Kirkus and Publishers Weekly. It's clearly hit a nerve. Why did you decide to invest so much of your life in John Maynard Keynes? Well, for me, the the sort of fundamental, profound political event of my lifetime uh, was the financial crisis of two thousand eight. I was I was just getting out of college and I had my first serious job uh, as a banking reporter for a trade publication, uh, and. I, I didn't particularly want to be a banking reporter for a trade publication. This is about 2006, but it just seemed so terribly interesting at the time because the banking sector at, at, at that moment was in the process of blowing up the global economy. And what I found remarkable about that moment, uh, which was a very exciting time to be a journalist, very terrible time, uh, you know, for, for the world economy, but uh, was that the, the, the existing economic understanding of the way the world works just did not match up with what was happening in the world around me. The sort of textbook understanding of reality just did not fit reality itself. And when I went and read John Maynard Keynes, because people started talking about Keynes, obviously, after the 2008 crash, I found that there was much more to Keynes than deficit spending. He wasn't just talking about dollars and cents and, and making equations balance and bringing economies out of recession. He had this very broad philosophy, uh, not only of how society should look, but of how an individual's life should look. 
and that that was all part and parcel of his economic theory. And his economic theory was was really in developed over time, it turned out when I began researching him, in service to that that broader vision of the good life. And I just became, you know, it's it's one of those things that the the muse sort of fills you and you just become possessed. And uh, I, I became I became totally fascinated by him and his, and his work. And so uh, af- after the uh, 26 during the 2016 election, um, my wife, frankly, just turned to me and said, you know, you're getting you're getting really bored with writing about politics. Uh, you need to write a book. And uh, and so I wrote a book about John Maynard Keynes. In a sense, though, did you write a book as much about Keynesianism as Keynes? Because it sounds to me like you you were intrigued by the idea of Keynesianism. As you say, it's 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 more than just deficit spending. It's a political, social, cultural theory of the world. Yes, and his the, Keynes's life is just a fascinating life. I mean, there there are very few people who lived the way that he lived. Uh, you know, he was very close with the the Bloomsbury set. You know, his best friends are these luminaries like Virginia Woolf and Lytton Strachey. Uh, you know, they, they would go and visit Pablo Picasso in, in Paris, and, and he was a, this powerful diplomat who was in charge of British war finance during both world wars. So he's doing all of these just astounding, astounding things. But what happens to his ideas after he dies is almost as interesting. Uh, we, we have this idea, I think, that most, pe- most people who go to college in the United States, uh, you know, they learn in Econ 101 classes that Keynes is the guy who, who you know, tells governments to spend in a recession to lift the economy out of the doldrums. Uh, but, but there are people who have been fighting over what the Keynesian legacy ought to mean and what, Keynes, uh, what Keynesian policy should look like. And the name of Keynes has this almost kind of mystical significance in the economics profession for a period of time, uh, which I think is interesting in its own right. And then for a while, he goes out of fashion, you know, for the 1970s to 1980s. Nobody really wants to have anything to do with, with who, John Maynard who, uh, who buried Keynes, uh, Zach? Was it, was it Hayek? Was it Friedman? Or was it a combination of all these Chicago school economists? Or was it Reagan and well, Thatcher? During uh, during Keynes's lifetime, he and Friedrich Hayek had had multiple sort of scrapes, but they weren't really on the same sort of uh, intellectual or or cultural level. Keynes was just this giant, and Hayek was kind of this this guy who was you know throwing stones at him. And he and and unlike the David and Goliath fight, I don't think Hayek ever really landed anything particularly significant on Keynes. Certainly not. Um, within his lifetime, uh, Keynes was this towering figure at Cambridge by the time that that, that he died, and a towering figure in Washington D.C. as well. Uh, Hayek was not, but Milton Friedman, who I think uh, certainly took a lot of his politics from Hayek, their economics differ in really important ways, which I get into in the book. Um, but Milton Friedman, by the 1970s, is really the ascendant figure in the economics profession, and he is he is operating uh, in a in a framework that is explicitly anti-Keynesian, saying, you know, the problems of the day in the 1970s are problems um, not only that Keynes, Keynesian thought doesn't address, but that Keynesian thought creates. Uh, and so uh, that becomes the sort of consensus for quite a, quite a long period of time. By 2008, uh, Friedman is, is back out of fashion and, and Keynes is back, but we don't really know which Keynes. What, what, is, the, uh, the, 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 what is the right approach to addressing the problems of the day? And other than just spending lots of money. And I think very briefly, sort of- though, uh, in, in broad terms, because we're not going to I mean, people who really want to figure out which Keynes need, of course, to mm-hmm. read your book, all 600 pages of it. But for us, 
would it be fair to say that the world between the late 40s and the late 60s was a Keynesian world, a world of obviously of the New Deal, of great society, of national health systems in Europe, that Keynes's ideas essentially won out and there wasn't really a debate. As you say, Hayek was throwing stones from the sidelines, but no one was taking him very seriously. No one was even reading his ideas. I think so. I, I think I think the certainly everybody said they were Keynesians between the 40s and the 1960s. So I think if everybody's saying that, then that's, you know, what, whichever Keynes you want to talk about, uh, that's the Keynes that won out. And, uh, and, and people just believed that, that governments needed to play a very uh, proactive role in economic management. And if they did not, then democracies um, would not be able to thrive. And, that, uh, and, uh, and, and, very, and very briefly, the reason for that was what? Uh, government had a responsibility towards um, fighting against dramatic economic inequality, promoting globalization, socialized health, uh, the economic logic of deficit spending. It was a combination of all those things, right? All of those things are tied up in Keynesian thought. You know, you, you can't uh, pin down any particular government at any particular time and say, well, they were trying to do all of these these specific things. But but certainly pe- these were the values that people believed were important for governments to express through through their policymaking. Um, and and they thought that Keynes was a model of of and, and sort of an icon you could hold up to uh, to get people to rally around those ideas. And as you say, there was a profound shift in 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 the the zeitgeist, the economic zeitgeist, uh, with Thatcher and Reagan and Friedman and the the the, the undermining, I guess, of, of many of Keynes's ideas. So, for would it be fair to say that for about thirty years now, we've been living in a monetarist world, what some people might describe as neoliberalism? We have, and we haven't. Um, I think when when the economy is doing what most of us think of as being, you know, is, is normal when it's not in a state of crisis, we're living in a monetarist world. But when we get into periods of crisis, when things don't look good, even even Ronald Reagan and uh, George W. Bush and Donald Trump in the United States um, have spent like crazy to try to, uh, to to lift things up. They they deploy Keynesian macroeconomic tactics in order to rescue the economy or, or fix things that they think are going wrong, uh, even if they don't describe it that way. Um, I don't think Keynes would have been particularly enthusiastic about the things they spend their money on, um, particularly the military. He was a very, uh, you know, he spent most of his life as a pacifist and he, um, he was trying to prevent war. The, 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 the second world war for him was a great tragedy. He was trying to uh, keep the peoples of Europe from fighting once again after, uh, after the first world war. And he thought with shrewd economic management and international cooperation, you could prevent violence and you could keep peoples from, from coming into conflict with each other. Um, so the idea of, of massive military spending being something that you, you use to, to, to create jobs, I mean, I think you would have found very troubling. Uh, but the fact is the tools and the, the basic sort of concepts that he developed to, to talk about the economy and to manage the economy are things that are used even by people who describe themselves as anti-Keynesians. So let's imagine that we can bring John Maynard Keynes back to life at least for a few moments, give him enough time to read the headlines and go on Twitter. Um, 
would he recognize our current predicament, the predicament of the pandemic, our world of 2020 with this sort of triple crisis, I guess, of inequality and healthcare and the crisis of globalization? Would it would a light bulb go off, off in his mind and think, well, we're just living in another version of the late of the late 20s or early 30s? Well, it's always hard to put words in the mouth of a dead man. Uh, so it's, you know. Well, you I, can. I, you yeah. spent four years <laughs> writing about him. So if anyone can, it's you. Sure. Uh, I, I, think, uh, I think he would recognize a lot of similarities between the world today and the world uh, in the 1920s and 1930s. I certainly did when I was reading through uh, you know, his, his papers at uh, King's College at Cambridge University. Uh, the things that he's concerned about um, just seemed in enormously relevant to uh to the moment that, that that we are living in and and i think but i do think there's there's an important point to make about his policy making which is that you know he wasn't somebody who wanted to be remembered as a deficit therapist he didn't wake up every day and say boy i hope i hope someday the economists remember me for being the guy who came up with uh, the legitimate theory of deficit spending he was trying to realize a certain kind of world and get policymakers to make economic policy in a certain kind of way. And he did not want people to be focused on sort of monetary abstractions and arithmetic abstractions. He wanted them to think about real resources and the way that they made society a, a more wholesome or hellish place. How would you deploy resources to make life better? So in the current pandemic, you know, he would, of course, want the government to spend a lot of money and to take control of a lot of resources in order to help guide things because there's the economic activity just doesn't exist right now. Uh, but he would he would be focused on public health, I think, more than anything else. He would say, like, what what are the steps that we need to take to win the war against this virus? After that, we can talk about what kind of society we want to live in and how we can how we can sort of uh, plan for the future. But he wasn't. He, he wasn't somebody who obsessed over the equation aspect of this. He, he obsessed over the sort of broader view of society and how the equations were going to affect society. How similar do you think our current social predicament is of, of inequality, of instability, of anger, radical anger, or both on the left and the right, to uh, the world that, that, that Keynes was responding to uh, after the Wall Street crash? Unfortunately, I see a lot of parallels. I th I think the the sort of nice response in the United States to the 2008 crisis was the Occupy Wall Street movement, where a whole bunch of uh, lefties and hippies kind of took over a park in New York City and started camping out and and railing against inequality. And the nasty response was the election of Donald Trump. Um, we're now about four years into the almost four years into a Trump presidency. Uh, and we have another economic crisis on our hands. And I, I genuinely uh, do not know what the response to this crisis is going to be right now. Everybody's being required to stay in their homes. Uh, so, you know, you, you don't see mass mobilizations, but in the United States, we certainly have uh, unrest in, in Michigan, a bunch of uh, a bunch of armed men sort of stormed the state legislature recently and, and shut it down. Um, you know, that's, that's not a good sign, uh, and it's the type of thing that, uh, that that Keynes was worried about. He wasn't worried about people having too much debt or, or you know, not enough GDP. He was worried about social unrest and social upheaval, uh, and and I, I feel like we are living in in politically tumultuous times uh, that that are eerily similar to those in the 1920s and 30s.
Uh, speaking of eerily similar times, I've read a couple of pieces comparing FDR and Joe Biden, suggesting that FDR wasn't really FDR until he became president. And before becoming president, he was much like Joe Biden, a rather uh, ghost-like figure that no one really understood or was particularly attracted to. Do you think that this is Biden's moment to shift into a Keynesian mode? There have been a lot of headlines about that, about uh, uh, Biden recognizing that this kind of innocuous centrism cannot work in the America of the pandemic in 2020. I have two thoughts about that. First, uh, it's, it's not totally true that FDR was not FDR until he was president. I mean, he was governor of New York for quite some time and uh, working with Herbert Lehman, who was one of the the sort of most became one of the most liberal senators in the history of the United States. I mean, they they pursued some very uh, progressive and expansive policies in New York that were sort of a, a, a trial run for the New Deal on the national level. Um, at, with Joe Biden, I, I think certainly he has an opportunity to transform his legacy, but he has to. He, he does have to change it. I mean, his uh, his role in economic policymaking over the past forty years of his career, he's been in the Senate since the nineteen seventies, has really been to side with all of the uh, neoliberal and conservative uh, turns in the Democratic Party that have taken place since the nineteen seventies. So he has. Uh, at, at every single juncture where the party is making a decision about where it wants to go in the future, he ends up siding with uh, with typically uh, big business, um, with banks, uh, and and against the the sort of traditional liberals like people like you know Ted Kennedy, who uh, who he was very good friends with. So uh, Biden would have to sort of reinvent himself, but he is also somebody who is, I think, intellectually flexible. Uh, you know, when he left the Obama administration, he gave an interview with, I believe, Jake Tapper from CNN, where he said that the biggest mistake that he'd ever made as a lawmaker was voting for the bank deregulation of uh, of uh, the repeal of Glass-Steagall, and uh, in in 1999, and and he felt like that really fueled the financial crisis of 2008. So he's not somebody who's incapable of of reflecting on his past mistakes. Um, but I also I, I just find it very difficult to predict where these guys are going to go ideologically in the United States. It's it's a totally volatile moment. And and I feel like almost anything could happen from people in either party. There are Republicans who are now talking about some measures that I think are much more progressive than what uh, a lot of people in the Democratic Party uh, who think of themselves as progressives uh, have been talking about. So uh, all bets are off. Uh, you know, the first thing he's got to do, though, if he wants to implement anything, is get elected. That that doesn't seem like a cakewalk to me, even in the pandemic. I agree. Let's say you get a call from Biden and he, he says, Zach, I read uh, your book. Really good. Uh, but of course, history doesn't repeat itself. We need to repackage Keynes and Keynesianism for the early part of the 21st century. Um, very briefly, how do we repackage it? How do we update it? How can Keynesianism be modernized in for, for perhaps a world of a, a new Green Deal, a world which in some ways, of course, is similar to the, the, the post-Wall Street crash age, but in other ways, quite different. We, you know, Today, we've got digital media. Today, we've got a pandemic. Today, we've got Donald Trump. Even back in the 30s, we didn't have Donald Trump. 
That's right. Well, I'd be really thrilled to get a call from Joe Biden if he wants to give well, me a Joe, if you're listening, uh, Zach, Zach, Zach will take your call. <laughs> I won't hang up on him. Uh, you know, I, I think the, the, the thing to remember about Keynes is that his ideas at the time were very ambitious. They were, they were grand proposals. They were about changing the world that we live in to meet the, the great challenges that were unprecedented, unprecedented challenges at, at the time. And I think it's important to bring that same sense of ambition to the table. Today, I think something like climate change threatens the world uh, in, in ways that the march of authoritarianism did in the 1930s. And it's important to meet those problems uh, with the urgency that they that they demand. But it's also the case that if you do not take care of individuals and families, they will not believe in your ability to meet these problems. Uh, one of the, the really great insights from Keynesian theory that, that runs through the general theory and, and through his work, frankly, afterwards was this idea that whatever the global economy does. You, you can't predict the future. There are bad things that are always bound to happen eventually. If you can find some way to cushion people and protect them from, from those uncertain swings of reality, then those, those downturns don't have to be disasters. They don't have to be uh, depressions and, and you know, generation-defining crises. And so one of the things that he starts working on in, in, in Great Britain is the development of, of the social safety net. He becomes the financial architect of the National Health Service, for instance. I think most people don't, in the United States at least, don't think of Keynes as the guy who helped socialize British medicine, but he was. And I think in the United States in particular, uh, we have a very fragile social safety net, and it makes the country more volatile as a result because people don't feel taken care of when, when bad things happen because they aren't taken care of. I mean, life expectancy has been declining in the United States for the last two years. Uh, first time in a century that that's happened. Uh, not happening in other parts of the world. So if you could find a way to, uh, to, to make people feel like they are taken care of and like they are part of a democratic community, that their government works for them and with them, that psychological aspect of economic policymaking is more important than any any issue about dollars and cents or, or debt and deficits. Uh, and so that's what I would tell Joe Biden. So finally, you talk about cushioning people from the, um, the bows and arrows of economic and cultural uncertainty. One way of doing that, of course, is picking up a good book. Uh, Zach, any suggestions on books that people could or should be reading while they're all stuck at home during the pandemic? They, of course, need to read your The Price of Peace, all 600 pages. But beyond that, what else should people be reading? Well, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk my wife's book. My, my wife has a book that came out the same day as mine. It's called One Mighty and Irresistible Tide, The Epic Struggle Over American Immigration from 1924 to 1965. Her name is Jia Lin Yang, Y-A-N-G. Uh, it's a just terrific, thrilling uh, piece of work on the history of U.S. immigration policy. Could not be more timely given the, uh, the, the, the political volatility of that issue in the United States uh, and, and, and throughout Europe as well, frankly. I, I also think there's a book called uh, Trade Wars or Class Wars by an economist named Michael Pettis and a brilliant journalist named uh, Matthew Klein that just came out. It's, uh, it's about the way trade policy affects economic distribution and the way inequality affects trade policy. Uh, it's really a brilliant piece of work. I think they're both worth your time. I hope your wife will be pushing your book as much as you're pushing hers with her interviews. Uh, she pitched me on the New York Times podcast this week, so I really owe her one. 
You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.